from Luke chapter 13. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit and found none. He said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fig fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? The gardener replied, sir, let it alone for one more year. Until I dig around it and put manure on it, if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. For all of us, I think it's safe to say that there are times when work is frustrating. When you are asked to do a job and you don't really want to and your heart's not in it and you're just hitting your head against a brick wall, but yet you you persevere, Elaine. Um, That's why they, they pay you, right? Because you're doing those frustrating things, not the things you enjoy about your job. It's, it's the things that are complicated and, and give you ulcers. Just to kind of give you a little bit of a testimony in my life, that job this week was writing a sermon. That was the thing in my life that was frustrating and not life-affirming that just kind of beat my head against. Now, there are some times when when I write a sermon, then the process goes smoother than others. There are some weeks when the word seems to pour forth from heaven as if a, a spigot has been opened upon the computer. There are moments when you're when you're there studying the gospel and, and it's almost as if the Holy Spirit is speaking the exact words that you were to say. But those moments are rare. And most of the time it's it's a struggle. It's it's a it's a wrestling back and forth, trying to, to find the right ideas, trying to figure out the right words and the right image, trying to to get the gospel so that it opens up and shines the the holy light of God's radiance upon the people. You have, I have great arguments with myself about what is this text saying at this particular time to, to this particular congregation. Eventually, you know, I go to my wife and I did it this week and I, I tell her that, you know, the, the words won't come. That I just don't have anything to say. And inevitably, I think, you know what, sometime that is when God, I'm sure, is leading us to have a singspiration service. I don't know if the worship leaders agree with me, but that's what I'm thinking in those moments. I always hope. 
The, the difficulty this week was, was a little weird because very early on, I had sensed what I thought God wanted us to hear today. I, I knew the message. I found what I what I believe God was saying to life for, for us, but for the life of me, I couldn't figure out how to say it. The, the words, the images, they just they just weren't there. I knew what I wanted to say. I just didn't understand it. This is not a completely unheard of thing in my life. Uh, you know, knowing something but not understanding it. There was a time I was a senior at Trevecca and I was taking these advanced religion classes, systematic theology and philosophy of religion and modern philosophy. And me and a friend of mine were at the lunch table or the dinner table there in Apple dining room. And, and we were talking about something that we had just learned that day in class. And, and there was a sophomore religion major sitting right next to us. And, and we kind of invited her in the conversation. And we were waxing eloquently about divine attributes and questions we were having and arguments. And pretty soon she started asking questions. And then her questions got a little bit more fever pitch and intense. And, and eventually, before we know it, she was in tears. We felt horrible. You see, we, we knew the, the information. We, we knew the things we had gotten from the lecture, but we did not understand it. And in our lack of understanding, we had caused this one that was younger than us difficulty and trauma and emotional stress. I'm not sure now on this side of graduation and this many years in ministry that I understand any better. As with most problems, it all started this week in my life with Jesus. You know, I really wish one day, one of those big posters that they put up with all of the names of, of Christ, you know the one I'm talking about there on a black background, they, just have, they have names of Christ just all laid out, you know, Son of God, Jesus, Lion of Judah, Prince of Peace. I wish right in the middle, some person would, would put problem, just right in the middle. Jesus causes problems everywhere he goes. He goes out into the desert, causes problems, comes back to Nazareth, causes a problem, goes to Jerusalem, he causes a big problem. And I believe very clearly that Jesus is still causing problems today. Your life will be settled and calm and, and nice and everything will be going along and then all of a sudden Jesus will show up in your life and say, hey, I really need you to do this. I need you to move. I need you to, to speak to that neighbor. I need you to, to pray. I need you to, to carry this burden. In this section of Luke 13, where we read this morning, Jesus isn't in a very good mood. He had already compared himself in the last chapter to being a thief in the night. He had talked about servants being beaten. He had promised that he was bringing division into the world as if we need any more division. A little bit later, he's going to call the king of Galilee a dirty name. He's going to uh, say that, that Pilate, uh, excuse me, he's going to uh, uh, demand that his uh, disciples submit themselves to, to being tortured and to following him to death. This is not a happy-go-lucky Jesus this morning. Chapter 13 starts off innocently enough. A couple of unnamed messengers show up and tell Jesus the news of the day. Pilate had done something awful. Pilate had killed Jews in the midst of their worship. 
Now, none of the other Gospels record this event, but but we know enough about Pontius Pilate to know that he is the type of person who can kill some people at lunchtime and not think about it by the time he gets to dinner. Upon hearing the news of this horrible tragedy, Jesus begins talking about repentance and perishing. No, I tell you, Christ says, unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Now, here here were these messengers just reading the daily news, and Jesus launches into them about sin and death. You see, what their innocent statement seemed to hide was this deep desire to find out where they stood, where they would find themselves on God's sliding scale of goodness. You see, those Jews didn't just die for nothing. That tower didn't just fall on random people. Those people must have had it coming. Those people must have been getting punished. They were getting what they deserved. It's okay. We, we, we're friends here. We can admit it. We like it when bad things happen to bad people. Right? It feels good. It feels right when, when the cheat gets cheated on. It feels right when when the murderer gets gassed, when the arsonist gets burned. We all love watching those high-speed police chases on the internet because we know at the end that guy that's driving recklessly is going to run into a brick wall and his car is going to be totaled. And everyone can cheer. The people come to Jesus and they ask, you know those people that the tower fell on? Didn't they have it coming? It wouldn't be the first time that God did a little culling of the wicked. In the past, the earth has opened up and swallowed them. Fire has rained down upon them. I'm sure you've never heard of a little place called Gomorrah, right? If God was getting back into the business of fire and brimstone, Galilee was the place. And these followers wanted to make sure that they were on the right side of God. But Jesus takes this idea of God punishing the wicked and he breaks it in half. God still is in the business of punishing the wicked, Jesus seems to say. But then he spins it and he clarifies it and he reminds those followers that we are all wicked. In the words of Paul in Romans, all have sinned. Jesus clarifies it and says, you will all perish just as they did. Unless you repent. Repentance is an interesting thing. In the, the, the Bible languages, to repent means to turn. It means you're going one direction and you stop and you start going to another direction. It's, it's an early uh, Greek version of a U-turn. We know repentance. We're in the middle of a, a season of repentance. In Lent, every Sunday, we are reminded that we aren't good enough, that we don't make the grade. In fact, we fail 
miserably. Ask the crowd gathered around the altar on that final night of teen camp if they understand repentance. The night when all the tears come after, after the week of being preached at. Ask the, the lady who walks into church with the, the heavy load and walks out with the free of that burden. Ask the man who is under the guilt of sin, who is able to breathe again. Ask the songwriter who says, my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose and went forth and followed thee. We know repentance. But that doesn't mean we understand it. And it definitely doesn't mean we we like it. I, I brought a hymnal this morning. That was part of the reason why the uh, the uh, the lectern kind of collapsed. You know, we, we have this hymnal and there there is a section in here entitled repentance. There there's a whole sections of songs in our hymnal about repentance. It, it's small, but it's in there. But when you look at the back there, there's kind of a concordance of all the words that are used in the songs. And the word repent is only used three times. You know, 784 songs and a word that, that we understand and I think we all admit is pretty necessary in our faith. It only shows up three times. And I think that I could be off, but I think that is telling us something. I could be wrong, but I think it's saying that we know repentance, but we may not understand it. And we definitely don't like it. But, oh, beloved, we need it. Jesus tells us that the thin line of repentance is what stands between us and perishing. And I don't think he's talking about the afterlife, the great beyond. I think he's talking about now in our lives right now. We are sinner and that sin tears apart our relationship, not just with God, but our relationship with one another, the relationship with everyone on earth. We hurt each other. We do that. I know, Lord knows, I have hurt some of you. And a few times it wasn't even on purpose. And in that place where sin has divided us between God and one another, we need to repent. We need to turn from our wicked ways. Not just say we're sorry. Not just ask forgiveness. But stop going in one direction and begin going in the other. To turn from our destruction of the carnal nature and to walk in newness of life. And Jesus comes to us and he says to enable us to move past the sin that binds us and enable us to live holy and complete lives. He brings us the same message that Isaiah had brought years before. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways. Let the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord. No, I tell you, Jesus says, unless you repent, unless you turn, unless you change, unless you leave behind those habits and thoughts and actions, you will all perish. 
But Jesus didn't stop there. That's, that's a good sermon to preach. Just, just stop right there. But Christ kept going. He started talking about a fig tree. A guy was walking about in his garden, and he sees that there's this tree. He's been watching that tree for a few years, and it hasn't done much. And so he goes up to his gardener, and he says, I'm, I'm tired of that. It's an eyesore. It's not doing anything. Chop it down. And the gardener asks him to wait. Wait. What do you think the guy had been doing for the last three years? Every year he gets up in spring and he goes to the fig tree and there's nothing but disappointment. And the gardener asks him to wait. It's not the most relevant of commercials, but I do remember very formative in my life the, the waiting for the ketchup commercials. You remember, perhaps, if you've reached a certain age in life, that it starts off with a man on top of an apartment building or something, and he, he puts a ketchup bottle right on the edge of the building, and he, he puts a brick on top of it, and then he starts walking. He, he gingerly walks down the stairs and, and takes his time. He, he goes out onto the sidewalk there below the building, and he takes out a hot dog, which, first off, you should not put ketchup on hot dogs. Mustard belongs on hot dogs only. Maybe relish or sauerkraut, but not ketchup. This is a fight we have in my house. He takes out a hot dog and he, he sits there and he just waits. People walk by and they give him dirty looks. And he says, waiting for the ketchup. I don't know why that stays in my mind. It's an odd image to have of God this morning. Not the, the, the owner. Not the person who owns the garden, but the gardener. The, the one who is strolling around in his garden and waiting, not bothered at all, beyond all reasonable measure for this tree that he has been waiting on for year after year to finally bloom and have growth and give fruit. You notice that the parable doesn't really end. There's no resolution. There's no conclusion. It just kind of stops. The gardener says, leave it alone for another year, and then the story stops. Then the man doesn't come back the year later for that fig pie. The man doesn't come back later to chop it down. It's as almost as if Jesus just leaves that waiting open. Maybe there is no ending to God's patience. Maybe the one who has infinite love, who has infinite mercy, who has grace that is new every morning and mercy that follows us. Maybe that same God doesn't stop waiting. So here's my dilemma that I've wrestled with all week. What is it? Is it perishing or is it patience? Is it the severity of God or is it God's grace? I know what I, I want to preach. I just don't know if I understand. I know that if we take seriously the severity of God's judgment and God's demands that we repent and turn from our wicked ways, and we mix that together with God's unending patience, 
in some kind of average, in some kind of way of smoothing over the bits that cling in our ears, we do a disservice to the gospel. For our Heavenly Father has absolutely demanded repentance and change from all of His children. Our Heavenly Father has unending, irrational patience. So what does that mean for us today? What, is it, what does it mean for, for you today? Do you know but not quite understand? Do you know that God demands repentance from all, not just the really bad people, not just the ones that we get excited when they get what's coming to them, but from all, for we are all washed up and undone. And God demands that we all must change, we all must leave behind the old ways, the sin that so easily trips us us, up, we must turn, we must change. But do you also know that God's actions cannot be calculated? That God is wild and free, working about in the world as he sees fit. Some of you are praying for people today. Do you know that God has unending, irrational, irrational patience? Do you know that God is that gardener tending the unproductive tree, working the soil long after everyone else has given up? Do you know, but not understand? And maybe today you're in that other camp. Maybe for too long you have held on to that old life. You have gone back to that sin over and over again. You have revisited that thing you should have put away. And you're hearing God call you saying now is the time to repent, to turn from your wicked ways and walk in the light as I am in the light. Perhaps the best thing for us to do is to pray with the Father. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I'm going to invite us to take a moment and pray together. I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Often in these services, there's, there's an act of faith, an act of, of repentance that is invited. People are, are welcome to come to an altar to pray. And there is something in that because our hearts are connected with our bodies. We don't have an altar this morning. We don't have a place to come to. So I want to invite us to do this. Where you are, to take a moment with your eyes closed and your heads bowed. And as you're hearing God call you to repentance to turn from something and to embrace his loving patience. I would ask you just to, just to lift up your hand. Thank you. If you are at home right now, as an act of faith, as a, a movement of your body, lift up your hand to say, Christ, I hear your call, and I am experienced your patience. If that is you this morning, 
If you have heard the voice of the Lord and you have lifted your hand in an act of faith, then know that God has changed you. That God has brought about redemption and forgiveness and transformation in your life. And that as you get up from this time of worship, you are a new creation. If today that act of faith wasn't born in your life, then hear me this. Our God has infinite, irrational patience that goes long after anyone else would expect. And his love knows no bounds and his mercy has no ending. And he is calling out to you this day. Will you join me as we pray together? Now, Lord Christ, in your abundant mercy, we pray that your patience would have no end. But we also pray, O oh God, in the same voice that you would call out, that we may hear your voice, that we may repent, that we might be transformed. In the name of our loving and patient God, we pray.